they sit comfortably. So let's uh, follow up on our theme today of the precepts, go through another precept. And this precept is the one, I take up the way of speaking truthfully. And um, it's stated in the, in the old style, um, in the negative language, um, not engaging in false speech. Um, so speaking, uh, taking up the way of speaking truthfully, in a, in a nutshell, is, is speaking about life as it is, like the, the way things really are. And in many ways we can look to the natural world as our role models. When the dog barks, you know, the dog is just speaking the truth of being a dog. Or when the magpie sings or the kookaburra laughs, they're just expressing the truth of being a magpie or a kookaburra. And when the waves break on the shore, they're, they're expressing the truth of the ocean, the sound of the ocean. In some ways, our, when we, when we um, come back to our natural self, our true self, we come back to that, that simplicity that we see in nature. Now, what we need to do to um, work our way into this precept is look into the nature of what is truth and what is deception. Now, a bit of interesting evolutionary psychology background to this is um, uh, millions and millions of years ago as mammals branched into different streams, um, there is a stream which is referred to as simian mammals and then there's lupine mammals. And simian are what we have um, evolved from, which are apes, monkeys, etc. And uh, they have a, a certain kind of way of being in the world, which is referred to as simian consciousness. And um, those of us, including human beings, being of that tribe, or that species, is that they learnt to adapt through deception. Mm -hmm. And you see deception all through nature. You know, animals will puff themselves up to look bigger, you know, so that, you know, they can scare off an aggressor, or they change colours and etc. and so on. Or snakes sneak around through the grass so they can't be seen and they get their prey, right? They, they blend into the environment. So deception, um, is an, is an evolutionary um, skill, you know, to survive. Um, but with lupine, con lupine branch is where wolves um, evolved from and, and also our, our domestic dogs. Mm -hmm. And um, they have a different way of being in the world where they, they don't act on deception. That's not their way of surviving. Um, they're very kind of direct. And that's what we see in our, that's what we love in our, in our, our domestic pets as dogs, do you know, is that they, as one um, writer uh, wrote a book on this, um, dogs never lie about love, you know, they never, they don't lie about their emotions. And the man who wrote it, Jeffrey um, Masson, was a um, psychoanalyst, and he did psychoanalysis for years and years and got fed up with the, with the fact of realising day by day that human beings lied about their emotions and um, so became much more attracted to writing books on dogs and wrote this book called Dogs Never Lie About Love. They probably never lie about anger or a whole lot of things or fear too. 
but um, there's many ways in which as human beings that we're probably it's part of our DNA do you know is that we, we learn to deceive, we learn to to mask our emotions in certain social situations as a way of protecting ourselves and so on or, or um, speaking ourselves up for instance you know um, there's many, which, many ways that we do it <clears throat> and um, some examples of that is um, the stories of, of uh, like monkeys walking along a jungle path and uh, one monkey sees some bananas off in a tree there which everyone has missed so instead of just rushing straight out to get them the monkey looks around at the sky as so, though, oh, it's a nice day, and sort of wanders there and everyone wanders off. And then when, when they've wandered off, he dashes into the, into the jungle and gets the bananas so no one else can get them. So that's deception, right? Whereas with, with dogs, do you know, if they go hunting and they kill something, it's all out there and they, they bring it all back for everyone to share, you know. And um, it's, a different, it's a different survival mechanism. But we should, we should um, not forget, um, we should recognise those biological kind of evolutionary um, skills, characteristics that we've inherited, you know, it's been part of that, that simian consciousness. And if you look around us in everyday life and what we see in the newspaper and the media, perception is rife, right throughout our culture, it's rife. It's just the way of the world. We see it so clearly in, in politics. We see it in ad- advertising as a form of deception. Um, and and, and uh, people or organisations project themselves to be very solid and trustworthy, like the banks, you know, but we've found out how untrustworthy they are. It's all deception. Right? Um, we're surrounded by it. But it's not just in our in our public lives, in our personal lives, it can go on too, you know. And sometimes it's nefarious and sometimes it's sort of like a bit of a white lie, but it goes on. Um, like with any of the um, precepts in Buddhism, we're guided by um, intention. And again, if we look at how we're faced with ethical or moral dilemmas in life, you know, in terms of there's no simple, easy, clear-cut solution, either we go this way and we avoid harm and that way we don't, you know, there's a potential for creating some kind of unpleasantness or harm, whichever way we go. Um, again, we're guided by intention. And is the intention self-gain at the expense of others, or is the intention not to do harm, you know, and there's many complex situations that can come up in our life. Um, some of the ones that I'm I'm reminded on reflecting on this in counselling and working with couples. Sometimes I come across a couple who um, have eventually decided that they're going to separate, and and they've got a child in their HSC year. And they've made that decision, and then there's a dilemma, well, well, do we tell the child or not? We don't want to upset him in his HSC year, so he's very upset and it impacts on his performance. So do we disguise the truth from him or do we tell him? It's a dilemma, a real dilemma a lot of parents face. 
And some parents will decide, no, we'll just keep on going and we'll tell him after the HSC, and that seems to be the wisest thing to do. But then if I've taken it further, like with a mother, and said, well, what will you do if he asks you outright? Do you know whether you're separating? What will you do? And, and many mothers said to me, well, I couldn't lie and I'd have to tell him the truth. And, and sometimes we have to examine whether withholding the truth is because we're facing something unpleasant that we don't want to look at or whether it's actually um, something that's more best, best to be forthright about. To give another example from my clinical work, this is going back years ago, is that I saw a, a child in the family who was very, very anxious and displaying a lot of symptoms of anxiety and his mother had died um, about a year ago and that was the onset of all of these problems occurring. He was never allowed to go to the funeral and all of his aunts and uncles said to him that his, he, his mum had gone away and gone to heaven. He was only about four, do you know, and he didn't quite understand or, you know, but half believed that something like this was going on. But he never settled and the anxiety symptoms continued and he didn't sleep and he was acting out. And eventually what occurred through family therapy and discussing this is that um, one of his grandparents sat him down and said, your mum died in a car accident, you know, and, and, and she's not coming back. And the child relaxed. Mm -hmm. The child was sad, but you could almost see the child's shoulders drop. Like, he just knew something wasn't right and the truth was being covered up and as soon as the truth was stated, that was the beginning of him being able to deal with it. So we always have to ask ourselves the question, who are we protecting when we, when we, when we choose to withhold the truth when sometimes we're, we think we're doing it with the best intentions, um, but is it actually wise? And there's no, there's no, there's no uh, um, definite um, answer to that question. Do you know it's situational? Now look at, let's look at the nature of um, the truth. Well, there's not the truth. Uh -huh. When we say the truth, it's like something which is absolute and applies for all times. You know, now, there may be some truths in life, like the fact that life is impermanent. You know, that seems like a pretty, a pretty permanent um, kind of view <laughs> of the world. Um, or that two and two is four. But a lot of things we just... Um, the truth of, is just the truth of the moment. Um, it's not something that necessarily endures. And there is a story, a Buddhist story. You know um, um, Mara, who is the, the lord of deception in Buddhism, is a story that he's walking with an attendant down the road one day and he sees this man who's got this really joyful look on his face and it looks like he's found something. And, um, and uh, the intendant inquires, so, you know, wonder what he's found. And he says, I, he's, he's found, um, the Mara says, oh, he's found a piece of the truth. And he started laughing. And, and the attendant said, yeah, but why are you laughing for him? And you're the Lord of Deception and this guy's found the truth. So why do you think that's so funny? He said, don't worry, he'll, he'll make a belief out of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we find something which is true in the moment and we turn it into an absolute. It's always right or it's never right or it's whatever. And um, the nature of the truth is the nature of life itself. All we can say, all we can speak to is the truth of the moment. We don't know what the truth of the next moment will be or what the past was. Um, the truth is a, is a, a, a transient experience. Um, one Zen teacher was asked um, by a monk, uh, where is it that the truth can be found? And he replied, it's already moved. <laughs> That's the nature of the truth. You can't, you can't pin it down. You just can't pin it down. Mm-hmm. But we're all looking for certainty. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one, of the, one of the difficulties that, that human beings have. We're looking for certainty and intellectual certainty. And we'll do anything we can to try and create it. But from a, a Dharma perspective, it can't be pinned down. It can't be pinned down into words. It's always moving. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll grasp at it rather than um, rest you can, instead of resting in, in um, a deeper view of the world, that it's, everything is uncertain. To, to, to avoid the fact that everything is uncertain and impermanent and unpredictable, so it brings up, brings up fear and anxiety, you know, and a strategy to try and reduce the anxiety and make the anxiety to go away is to cling on to uncertainty, which really, after all, just makes us more insecure. Um, but if we rest in the insecurity of not knowing, um, then we, we come to a deeper sense of rest within what the nature of life is. When we look at um, the whole issue of um, deception, we also need to look into, it's not just that we um, can deceive others and our practice is not to deceive others. And the point we need to make here too is even though um, biologically and from an evolutionary point of view we might be part of this mammalian species that survived on deception, it doesn't mean that we have to be driven by our biology. There is another way of being in the world. Just like um, mammals or animals generally are status-seeking animals in a hierarchy. And you can see human beings very clearly be driven by status in a, in a status hierarchy. And, uh, but the practice of Zen is to become the man or the woman of no rank. You know, it's where, where status doesn't matter anymore. Um, it's just a construct that we can actually see beyond. Mm-hmm. And um, we can see that um, while there might be an, an innate desire to deceive, that we don't have to be driven by that, at least we don't have to be driven by that when it's um, um, to do with um, self-gain and, and uh, at the expense of others. We don't have to be driven by that. There is another way of being in the world. And we're not caught up with concepts. So there is deceiving others, but also there's deceiving oneself and they're, and they're linked. And um, one of the most common ways in current contemporary life that people deceive themselves is through what 
I've referred to many times here, um, given talks on as narcissism. You know, there's, a, there's a tendency for, day, for people to talk themselves up. That's the nature of narcissism, that we actually think that we're more intelligent than what we are, or more beautiful, or more important, or our opinions are more certain, or whatever. That's the nature of narcissism. And that's a form of self-deception. Mm-hmm. And then if we're, if we're caught up in self-deception, then we'll want to protect that identity that we have, and then we deceive others in the bargain as well. So a lot of, a lot of this, this, uh, this precept about um, speaking the truth again comes back to recognising the stories that we tell ourselves and the identities that we create for ourselves, which are a deception. And, and if we see clearly into that, the need or, desire, or the desire to deceive others would diminish or go away. And it all comes back to um, that principle in the second noble truth of grasping and aversion. You know, if we're caught up in grasping and aversion, then we'll, we'll want to grasp onto a better image of who I think I am, a better identity, and we want to deny and ignore all the things we don't want to see. But our uh, our work as a Zen practitioner is to observe truthfully what is there and to, you know, to see into the uncertainty, to see into the fear and the insecurity that drives us to create these identities. And what is so important through all of these precepts, but particularly this one, is that we're inviting in the observer and we're not inviting in the judge. Just simply inviting in the observer to see what's going on, that's all. The, the judge is not, doesn't have an invitation to the party. Some examples of how people hold to identities. Um, a couple of weeks ago I was around in a coffee shop around, around the road here during lunchtime and I couldn't help overhearing the conversation of a couple of women in a table near me. And um, I couldn't hear all of it and I wasn't interested either, but but the, 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 um, the volume got raised every now and then with this woman continually saying over and over again, but I'm a nice person, right? And, and it's kind of like she'd been accused of something and just like, but, but I'm a nice person, that, that was the refrain. And uh, a few reflections came to mind. One was that, that um, line, um, methinks the lady does um, protest it too much. <laughs> but the, but the, um, the other one was, is that I self-reflected and I, I thought, could I actually say to other people that I, I'm a nice person? I went, mm, no, I don't think so. Because I know I'm not a nice person all the time. Right? And so to say, to say I'm a nice person implies I'm a nice person all the time. Right? It's like a fixed identity of who I am. And it, and it conveys my, my virtue and my goodness in the world. It's an identity. Um, but I, I can't honestly say, I couldn't honestly say I'm a nice person. I know myself only too well that I'm not a nice person all the time. <laughs> but that's what we wanted. We want to deceive others with identity. Right? Um, in my, in my counselling practice, I also, from time to time, come in contact with people um, who are kind of um, criminal underground kind of figures. And they're interesting too. And they, they, they've actually created an identity 
are being outsiders to the establishment, you know, and they don't play by the rules, and they've actually created an identity around that, and they identify with other people in the in the sort of the underworld, you know, and there's something in one way which is refresh refreshingly honest about them, because they don't deceive themselves that they're deceptive. <laughs> they know they know they're, they're liars and crooks, and they deceive people, but they but they don't pretend otherwise. Right? Um, and in some ways, there's something um, refreshing about that, but it's rather nefarious at the same time mm. because, in some ways, they've also um, deluded themselves that they're actually better than other people because they don't they don't deceive themselves about their dishonesty. <laughs> So it becomes another convoluted kind of identity that justifies them doing whatever they want to do to rip off, rip off other people at the, at the expense of other people. So there's very, very many convoluted ways in which we do that. Other ways that we, um, we don't speak the truth, we don't speak, um, uh, take up the way of speaking truthfully is when um, we we claim to give opinions or views on things as though we know absolutely, you know, that we know what we're talking about and we don't. Right? That's a form of deception. And we may have the view that we're so intelligent and so smart and so right that we just know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but we don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that is a, that's, that's clinging to an identity of rightness, you know, or some kind of intellectual superiority. There's very few things we know for sure in life. There's some. Two and two is four. Mm -hmm. That's about as good as it gets. Uh And uh, if we, it's better to to say that we don't know uh, rather than, you know, to think that we've got to fill in some expert view about something um, and, and convey an opinion. Sometimes some of you come to me and dissent, you know, and tell me that um, for reasons you don't understand, that you're just not having a good session, you can't concentrate any well. And, um, and, and I feel, as, sometimes I feel a, a, a slight pressure on myself to come up with a reason why that might be the case, if you ask me, but I don't know. I could, if, I, if I could say something that I thought was helpful, I will, but often I just don't know why you're having a bad day. <laughs> and it's better that I say so rather than trying to project that I'm all wise and know everything that's going on in everyone. I don't. So. One of the aspects of this too, which is very important to address, is not just um, intellectual honesty or kind of ethical conduct in commerce and things like that, but also in our interpersonal relationships and in our intimate relationships in particular, that we're emotionally honest. And and that means um, when when we're sad, then we, we speak to that sadness rather than trying to hide it where it's appropriate to do so. Or if we're fearful or stressed, is that we speak to that truth rather than trying to pretend, pro- pro- project an image that we're not. Or if we're angry, you know, to acknowledge it and own it and to, and to um, speak to that 
emotional truth as well. And a lot of suffering is caused in relationships by us not being um, emotionally honest and distorting what's actually going on with us. Now the way for all of us to practice with this is to follow, in general, um, a statement which uh, one of Diane Rosetto's students made when he, when he um, found his own form of words for taking up this precept. I take up the way of honestly facing the distrust, uncertainty, uncertainty and fear that propels my tongue to be disloyal to the moment. That's a good form of words, I think. And it's a good one for all of us to reflect on and take up in, in working with this precept. And Can you say that again, please? Yes. I take up the way of honestly facing the distrust, uncertainty and fear that propels my tongue to be disloyal to the moment. Good words. And uh, again, it, it simply it, it simply means. I mean, this is the process of sasing. We're just describing it. It leads to, if we if we um, if if we practice meditation over and over again, and really look into the nature of what is really happening right now and what my body experiences are, my thoughts, feelings, what is actually happening factually around me, if we can do that, then, then there would be a natural expression of this precept coming forth. Because we're just, we're just committed to being with what is without distortion, you know, and, and seeing it clearly for what it is. And if we do that, then as... I think it's the experience of all of us, you know, over the last couple of days and in our practice generally, you, you look within and you see the fears and uncertainties and, and you can, you can um, compassionately embrace them rather than running away from them or minimising them or exaggerating them. You can just see them for what they are and you, and you rest in the uncertainty. You rest in the fleetingness of the present moment. You rest in this deconstructed mind that doesn't know anything, right? And you realise that's the best place to be in in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's out of that experience, then the the um, taking up the way of speaking truthfully naturally occurs. And the more you practice, the more effortless that it becomes, because it's just the just the best way to be in the world. Okay, thank you.